Okay, welcome everyone to the second part of this uh, podcast episode. Uh, that was supposed to be one episode, but we talked for such a long time that I invited Andreas Hertzberg to come back to talk about the more recent years in my coffee career. So welcome, Andreas. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the last episode, if you didn't listen to that, it's the part one of this two-part episode podcast um, where we are talking about my 25 years in coffee because in... I started working in coffee in 1998, and uh, this year it's been 25 years since I started. And it's been a career that has been long, but also in an interesting period, because a lot of things developed during those 25 years. Not because of me, but kind of parallel to my career. So that's why I invited Andreas to come, because he has also worked in uh, coffee since 97, so even longer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, is now working at Nordic Approach, which is a green coffee importing company and used to be the CEO of Solberg Hansen, which is a coffee roastery. And we have worked together indirectly and directly for almost 22 years, I think. 23? 23 years. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a while. So that's why Andreas is here. Uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about Andreas, just check out the previous episode where we do a proper introduction of him. Okay, let's get started. So, Andreas, uh, last episode we kind of came up to the year 2007 and we decided to stop there because one and a half hour passed and that's the year I opened my business. But maybe we should just uh, uh, sum up a little bit, uh, maybe not everything, but um, maybe the lead to, to me opening the business because I, I used to work at Stockflits, which was a chain of coffee shops. And uh, when I started there, it was... I was just wor working in one store, but then you pushed, because Solberg and Hansen was the owner, you pushed uh, us to open more stores. Uh, yeah. And at the end of 2005, we had, I think, six stores. Do you remember? Yeah, I think it was six. Uh, yeah. Something six. like that. Yeah. And um, we had a little canteen that made food for the uh, courthouse in Oslo. And um, yeah, uh, so I was kind of running around training people trying to keep the quality up in these stores and we changed the concept completely from being more of a traditional coffee and tea store to be a modern coffee bar i guess it was modern back then at least <laughs> it still is modern but um it was very new that con kind of concept in in norway um and then uh after i won the world barista championship in 2004 i got the opportunity to travel a lot I traveled to Capo Excellence in Honduras in 2005 as a judge. I was traveling to a lot of countries doing barista training. Um, and that kind of triggered my idea of doing something more or something different than what I was doing at Stockflats. And uh, thanks to you, I mean, I had the opportunity to travel because uh, you were kind of my boss back then and never said no when I asked if I could take some time off work. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, it benefited both me and the business, but um, mainly me, I guess. And uh, in 2005, I decided to leave and um, started consulting and also started planning. Uh, we didn't dig too much into the planning part because I remember we mentioned in the last episode, uh, I was in Bern in 2006. You were there as well during mm -hmm. the SCAE convention back then. 
Yeah, with the legendary goats for a prize. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> where Klaus Thompson became the world champion and <laughs> someone had forgotten to make trophies. Yeah. So they bought some kind of plastic goats. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> that's burned. Yeah, uh, I think he donated that goat to Nordic Barista Cup and uh, that was uh, a victim of uh, high bidding on an, a yearly auction that was at the Nordic Barista Cup. That's true, yeah. You and Jens, were we bought it, yeah. you bought it every second year, I guess? Yeah, that's true. Do you remember the highest price it got? No, I don't. But it was pretty expensive. Yeah. I mean, maybe $10,000 or no, maybe not that much. I don't $2,000. I don't remember, to no. be honest. Wow. Do you know where that trophy is now? I I remember that it broke one of the horns yeah. uh, <laughs> because it was <laughs> it was plastic. Yeah, it was plastic. It was bad. But uh, I think uh, maybe I mean as I recall, we bought it last. I mean Solberg and Hansen, and then uh, maybe I don't know if it was given away. Or I don't or if it was a charity at the end or I don't. Maybe I donated mean, it back to Klaus or maybe I don't remember. I don't know where it is. If anyone knows where it is. Uh, please let us know. Please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Klaus would love to get it back. <laughs> okay, but uh, it was at the after party there in Bern um, that I mentioned to you that I was planning a business. Uh, I had been approached by a competitor of Sorbergen Hansen that wanted to do business with me. And uh, you told me we need to talk when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not when we are on the party, but yeah, we yeah. need to talk, obviously. And I think I came to your office the week after. Yeah. I didn't really have a business plan, but uh, we talked for a while. And I told you I was I wanted to open a roastery or I, I wasn't really sure. I was exploring like private labeling, um, maybe a roasting company, maybe a coffee shop, maybe a training center. And then it kind of... Uh, ended up being what it is today, which is all of the above except uh, private labeling. <laughs> we yeah. don't do that. Uh, what what made you kind of uh, invest in that? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, so for me, like we touched a little bit briefly into that last time, um, last podcast. Uh, I think that uh, for me, I mean, the one thing was the Nordic Barista Cup thing that we should learning through uh, information exchange that we had as a general rule. And then also that we um, uh, that we believe in competition. I mean, like uh, genuine con competition is good. And and from I mean, having traveled a lot and see, I mean, this may sound a little bit arrogant, but it's like when you see how people s some places in the world compete on, let's say, false premises, mm. uh, because uh, I mean, if you have money, you can you can act as if you're doing the right thing. And you can claim that you're buying good quality and you can do the right marketing, do the, do the right uh, wrapping or whatever you want. And then you can get away with it in, in many occasions. Mm. Uh, and for me, it was like at that time, I mean, Solberg being the biggest uh, coffee roastery, specialty roastery in, uh, in Norway, even as Scandinavia at that time. It was kind of evident for me that you as a, as a private individual... Uh, with the ambition level you had, I mean, winning the competitions you had won and and so on, and uh, because we knew each other, it was like, it was no way that I was, I mean, I was able to compete properly with you uh, because you would have a better storytelling mm -hmm. and uh, because you're, I mean, you're a world champion and you're a small, you know, on the corner somewhere maybe. Uh, and then for, for me, it was much better to, I was basically afraid of, you competing or teaming up with someone that had bad intentions mm. 
uh, and then competing on false premises because you would win the competition anyways. And I would rather want you to win with the right intentions and the, with the right backing, with the right coffee and the right, you know, you know the, all the right things. Mm. Because, I mean, as I recall, the, the other one was probably a little bit more suspicious than them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's a little bit, uh, I think that was, I mean, a combination of the potential in you and also that I wanted to, for you not to be, uh, or for us to be competing on equal terms, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember I went to the other company. They were actually doing quite a good job, yeah. uh, I have to say, but um, uh, they sold the company a few years later. So, I mean, they wouldn't have been there anyway. No. <laughs> so, um, but I'm glad that I went with a solution where we kind of uh, opened together. Um, I spent most of 2006 uh, on the beach. <laughs> I remember that summer was like insanely hot and nice weather almost every day. So I would cycle to the beach um, and I had uh, a little notebook writing uh, and uh, some beers <laughs> and maybe some cigars. And I was basically writing a business plan for, uh, for the company and I had never opened a business like by myself before. So in Norway, you can get these kind of uh, uh, templates on how to write a bus business plan from the local government. And uh, they actually require you to take a course before you open a business, which is great because you kind of learn at least some basic things. Um, but I, rem I, I still have that business plan in my computer. And I, when I read it now, it's remarkable how much we still follow it. Like. Okay. Uh, of course, when I write about competitors, uh, th those have changed and how we're going to sell coffee has changed uh, because of technology and everything. But uh, the idea of the company is still the same. Like we are supposed to be a place for good coffee, of course, um, mm. consistently high quality and also be a place where people can come and learn. Uh, that's kind of the core of our business. And we always say we do things right here. That's <laughs> we don't want to do it uh, halfway. We try to do it uh, as good as we can. But it opened in uh, 2007. I, it was the last day of June. I remember I took over the space where our coffee shop is on the 2nd of April. Mm. Um, I remember because it was my mom's birthday and uh, it was Easter. <laughs> and we started tearing the place down. and. After two days, the neighbor from above came down and said, okay, now it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Too much noise in the Easter holiday. So I was very eager to get that store open. Um, and yeah, the location was uh, strange, I have to say. Uh, it was difficult to get a location back then. Um, um, I remember looking in the ads uh, online. There were very few spaces uh, available. And uh, the ones who were were kind of too expensive on a high street or they were like way off. So we found a little hairdresser at Grinlöka and uh, decided to open there in a small space with a roastery and everything. It was It's 50 square meters uh, plus some office and stuff. But that's still where the coffee shop is today. Mm. But we have taken the roaster out, of course. And uh, the only thing that was written in my uh, business plan about location was do not open at Grinlöka. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only thing that I didn't follow. But um, I remember sitting outside the space before we opened and counting how many people were walking past it. And it turned out to be a pretty good location uh, eventually. I mean, 
there's plenty of people in the neighborhood so yeah i remember i mean there was a couple of other options that we kind of were looking at or you had been looking at and you we were discussing and uh, and uh, i mean some one of them i pass every now and then and i'm it's i mean i'm very happy it's not that location at least yeah <laughs> so I, th- I think the um, i mean the 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 good thing about the current location or the location that uh, that you finally chose was i mean it's it's on a it's a corner shop first of all and then it's uh, in a good area but it's still not on the main street or yeah. it's a little bit of a destination place and and uh, i think that's uh, a key to to us i mean uh, it's a good thing for a concept like yours yeah and I, that was also part of the plan was to not be on a high street because yeah. we wanted to be a place where you just didn't kind of drop in to randomly to get a cup of coffee we wanted people to take a decision of going there uh, and having a cup of coffee so that's why we don't sell any food or anything it's just coffee um, and it's a place where people can learn about coffee and taste coffee and get a good coffee experience uh, for um, hopefully <laughs> but um, of course in the beginning of a business that's a terrible decision because you don't get any customers and I remember the first years you know we had time to do so many things in the store during opening hours we had cuppings and you know we were playing around uh, you know t- doing all sorts of things but but you also had only one chair yeah <laughs> and that was for your grandfather yeah, that's true <laughs> that's true i yeah. had my grandfather was uh, almost 100 years old yeah. um and he used to come to stockflits uh, at least a couple of times a week when i was working there to have a cup of coffee with my grandma she passed away so he started coming a little bit more rarely but um, he still came and uh, so I decided we didn't have I thought I didn't have much space for seats because we were doing roasting and everything so I thought at least I need to have one seat it's reserved for my grandfather but uh, if he's not there you can sit there of course but uh, yeah, so it, it, now we have, I think, 20-something seats. Yeah, exactly. It's so, a big difference. And it's very busy, uh, especially in the summer. But let's uh, talk a little bit about the, the business from the start, because, uh, uh, you know, when I opened the company, one of the reasons why I wanted to open a training center, for instance, was I was doing consulting, uh, but I didn't really have a place to do training. So I would either have to come to some other place to do it where you didn't necessarily have the equipment you wanted or uh, I would have to borrow a place which is not ideal and I even had trainings in my kitchen because I had a one group espresso machine that I won (laughs) so in my old flat I used to have some trainings uh, which was you know not very ideal and um, the espresso bar was opened because I wanted to show people how uh, our coffees could taste like. I never intended to run a busy coffee shop. It was more like a, 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 you know, a showroom for for our coffees. Uh, today, of course, it's super busy, but I, I still feel that it's a place where we can show what our coffees taste like. And it's especially good if we can bring customers, wholesale customers. We can do training there, uh, like live training, where they actually do training when we're open. And that's pretty practical. But um, the main kind of part of our business today, and kind of was back then as well, was opening the roastery. And um, the reason why I wanted to do that was I had started to taste very, very good coffees around the world. And uh, although I could access some of them in Norway, I couldn't access them consistently. 
so I remember Solberg Hansen bought some fantastic Cup of Excellence lots, but they were very small lots. They would disappear after <laughs> a few weeks. Um, and also the roasting, no offense, but uh, it was not so consistent back then, basically because uh, it was roasted with the old systems, maybe, yeah. Um, so, and that was very frustrating when I was doing training. Like one week I would buy a coffee, it would taste fantastic. And the next week I used the same coffee and it would taste terrible. Mm. <laughs> and that's not so nice. So that was kind of the intention with the roastery. Uh, so when we opened, uh, of course we were small. I think the first year we roasted like three tons of coffee mm. uh, in six months. And the only place that I went to buy coffee was the basement of Solberg and Hansen. <laughs> Because um, you offered, since Solberg Hansen was part owner back then, you offered us to kind of choose from the coffees you already had. There were no restrictions, uh, which was great. I could go in and take whatever I wanted. And I, even, I think I even stored the coffee there in the mm. basement. But then uh, as time kind of passed a little bit, uh, some of the coffees that I've selected right before we opened, um, very soon started to taste old, uh, like Woody, the green coffee. Um, and then um, I didn't really enjoy that. <laughs> Nobody likes uh, old coffee. So I, I thought I had to take control of the buying myself and, and, and also to be able to access more diversity. And then Morten, actually, that you work with today, Morten Veneskoy, he was the green buyer at Solberg, mm. and he invited me to come, come to Colombia on a sourcing trip. So that was my first sourcing trip. It was uh, Colombia, I think it was November in 2007. And we went for two or three weeks. Um, had a blast. Uh, I bought 10 bags of coffee or something. <laughs> <laughs> but that was actually the start of uh, my relationship with Elias in Tamana. Although I didn't buy coffee from him back then, I met him then on that trip. So um, ever since, I've actually been in touch with him every year. And of course, now I'm, I am. And then I also bought some Kenyan coffee from, uh, I think, through you. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it was you that told me that uh, there was something going on in Kenya and uh, the farmers hadn't gotten paid, all these kind of things. Um, there was like a scandal with a, a governmental mill there or something. Yeah. And then I was invited to go there to, I think, judge in a barista competition. So I decided to ask Bridget, who was working at Dormans, if I could also buy some coffees. And she said, yeah, of course, come down, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and uh, I went on a small trip with uh, Peter Dupont from Coffee Collective and Tom Owens from Sweet Maria's. And uh, we hung out with Kamao Kuria, which is the CMS, uh, yeah, he's a manager down there. And he was getting critique because he was spending so much time with us and we were only buying, you know, 20 bags and uh, all the other clients were buying like 20 containers of coffee. <laughs> hmm. But he said, you know, one day they might buy 20 containers as well. So you never know. And um, that was kind of the start of uh, uh, my buying career. And also uh, because it wasn't as complicated as people had told me, um, it really triggered me to go out and try to buy more direct, um, which kind of was the Solberg model, I guess, uh, because you were doing the same back then. Yeah. 
I mean, and the problem uh, for many people at that time, even for you, was like, I mean, you had, uh, let's say, a supporting partner uh, in the beginning, but mm. but the problem is that y- you don't know when you start how much you're going to roast. No. Uh, and it's difficult to, to, like you said, to buy the right amount and, you know, to have enough, but not too much. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, I mean, and if you're sourcing that directly, it's not even possible. I mean, like, in theory, it's obviously easy, but in practical terms, it doesn't work. Yeah. So, and at that time, it wasn't really... Uh, and this is also part of the story because that's also the reason why uh, importing companies like Nordic Approach also uh, has uh, or was founded uh, some years later. I mean, it was because there was not wasn't really any specialty coffee available in uh, in uh, in bags in no. in Europe. No. So so I mean, Solberg was offering it for you, and then there was more the traditional uh, traders in uh, in Europe or Central Europe that were kind of offering. Uh, what they consider specialty, which we still maybe not consider specialty mm. to, to the same extent as mm. as what specialty is now. So, I mean, that's also part of the challenge. I mean, you have to have some consistency uh, or you have to be able to foresee how much or budget how much, not budget, but foresee how much you're going to yeah. spend before you can start importing. That's uh, I work with that almost every day. <laughs> you know? It's difficult yeah, still. Yeah. Juggling numbers. But... Um, I think you know uh, w- uh, the narrative when I started was that it was too difficult to okay it's easy to find the coffee but it's difficult to get it to Norway. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, you Solberg offered to co-ship with me, uh, but they didn't necessarily buy from the same origins at the same time, so uh, I ha- had to be creative. And I remember I shipped some Kenyan coffee with the Coffee Collective. I've been shipping with uh, you guys. I used an importer once. Um, yeah, so it, that was kind of the main challenge, actually, because mm. finding the coffee, I mean, at Dormans back then in Kenya, there were no coppers. I mean, when I was there with Peter and Tom, we were the only ones. Mm. And uh, if you go there today, you know, there's 20 coppers <laughs> yeah. all trying to buy in the same coffees. Nothing wrong with that, but uh, it was like uh, very, very early days and uh, there weren't that many roasters around um, mm. that was interested in going there and looking for specific coffees. That's the time when I bought the first, uh, I think I bought uh, Tegu, uh, so we called it Tekangu. Mm. People are still asking for Tekangu. We also bought some Karagoto. We still buy Karagoto, but we don't call it Tekangu anymore. No. <laughs> um, but um, that was really the start of uh, my Kenyan coffee buying career. And uh, today we're actually buying a full container here. So. Now I do my own logistics and have been doing it for quite a, quite some time. Hmm. Um, but I remember back then, uh, especially some of the old cuppers uh, that used to work at Solberg and other places, uh, they said like, yeah, the Kenyan coffee is uh, interesting, you know, but uh, it's too acidic, it's too fruity. <laughs> they didn't like this kind of uh, new um, modern uh, flavor preference that young people had. So we loved fruity coffees, but uh, they preferred like the older rested uh, woody coffees, I guess. Um, like you were uh, using in the espresso blend we talked about last uh, episode. Yeah. Do you remember any shift in in kind of flavor preference? Because when Morton took over, he was very progressive with that. He wanted the coffee to taste like wine, I remember. Like <laughs> he was only looking for these super complex coffees. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, I guess it's, uh, I don't re exactly remember when, but I mean, you, we touched into it last time. I mean, you, when you were at Stockfetz, uh, I mean, in our uh, surroundings, I mean, making the Stockfetz espresso was, uh, was something else. And we also at that time started uh, doing, uh, so SO espresso, yeah. SH espresso, which was like a value added espresso uh, compared to the the original original half and half or you know 50 50 kind of blend thing uh, so and then also at the same time it was like the starting of a single origin espresso as well yeah uh, more or less I mean around those times so um, so I remember I mean yeah I, rem I remember what you're saying that uh, it went from this more rested uh, stable coffees to more uh, progressive and more uh, um, you call it like it's more uh, i wouldn't say offending but you know you have to make a stand if you like it or not kind yeah. of it's uh it's not it it you don't just drink it and and i remember people were afraid of um that it wouldn't stand through the milk and yeah, yeah. but i mean <laughs> but i mean some of the i mean the absolute best coffees i've had i think one of one of them I, i'm thinking is is probably i got it in in the i mean it's hard to say but i got it in in the u.s at the trade show not at the trade show but uh being at a trade show in a big city and I got I think I I wonder if it was in New York actually but I got like an um, I mean a fantastic Kenyan coffee and a cappuccino mm. where I mean it was like blueberries and it was so pronounced I mm. never tasted anything and it's just because it was so different mm. uh, so I mean it yeah it's kind of changed I don't know yeah. exactly when or why but I think it happened gradually and couple excellence for sure has been important uh, mm. like Co they put the coffee on the map, like coffee all of a sudden had an address. Yeah. And of course, today, for me, it's unthinkable to blend coffees. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. There's nothing wrong with doing it, but for me, it's like uh, very unthinkable to do. That's just the way we work because we work with single farmers. We try to get the products to be unique. We try to plant new varieties, get new flavors. And then mixing that with some other people's coffee, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, but um, yeah, that's just different approaches. Uh, I remember one thing specifically, and uh, we're now in 2008. <laughs> um, it was early 2008, I think. Um, uh, we had a visitor from uh, the US. Uh, he was uh, curating some coffees from Ethiopia. Uh, for an exporter called Bagadesh, I think. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about Joseph Brodsky, who now runs Sun 90 Plus. He had just started the company 90 Plus in 2008. If it was even named that back then, I don't remember. But um, I think it was, actually. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and he came with some samples to Norway uh, of some wonderful uh, hand-sorted, hand-selected, uh, you know, separated tiny little lots of uh, natural processed coffees from Aricha, a washing station in Yirgacheff, I think, or Sidama. And those coffees were amazing. Like, they were like pure fruit juice. Um, and it was the first time I ever tasted a natural like that. That was so clean and uh, clean in, in a fermenty kind of way, but uh, it tasted like peach and strawberry juice. And also the roast was particularly light. <laughs> I mentioned this before in some other episodes, but uh, uh, we did a blind cupping at Solberg. Uh, you remember that little round old mm. table that turned around uh, when you were cupping? We were sitting there 
And I remember I had uh, our Ethiopian washed coffee on the table uh, that I had bought through Solberg, I think. And Solberg had, uh, with Morton, had a few coffees as well. Um, and then uh, Joseph brought maybe five or six natural processed coffees. Uh, we were cupping it blind. And there was one coffee that I really disliked on the table, and that was ours. <laughs> um, and the main reason why I didn't like it was because it was so roasty. Uh, and I was in the, under the impression that we were roasting light back then. And I think other people were too. That uh, you know, we had the rumor of roasting light, but man, it, I could only taste the roast, and um, I couldn't figure it out. Uh, when they, they told me this was our coffee, I was like, there must be something wrong. I went down to measure and everything. Truly, it was everything was correct. So um, that's actually the time when we started pushing to roast lighter. Um, and later that year, we had a Nordic roaster competition. I think it was the first one. Mm. Um, it was a small one at Solberg and Hansen, um, where we had uh, brought our own coffees to compete. Uh, the format was a little strange back then. I think we just made filter coffee or we did cupping. Or mm. And uh, I remember it was a blind cupping, of course, 10 roasters putting their best coffee on the table. And uh, I remember people were raving about one coffee that tastes like bubblegum, you know, tastes like wine, tastes like fruit juice, doesn't taste like coffee. Uh, and I started suspecting that was our coffee. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I had bought uh, some of that Aricha natural, and uh, we had really tried to push the roast as light as possible. Maybe too light, mm. maybe. But it, it was so different, and uh, we won that year, which was great. Um, but that was kind of the start of the light roast era. And we did compete one or two years uh, after that as well, in both 2009 and 2010. I don't remember which year this was, but just to show you a photo, uh, it's hard for you guys to see. We can put it in our Instagram post uh, about this episode. But this is a photo from the Nordic Roaster in Iceland, and I don't remember which year it is. But here you can clearly see there's nine different coffees on the, on the tray. And there's one that is in the middle that's much, much lighter in color than the other ones. <laughs> oh, it's uh, very, very... <laughs> I mean, some of this coffee you wouldn't drink just from the looks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so uh, even like one or two years later, we were still like really on the light side. And I'm not saying that we invented light roast or anything because, you know, the supermarket coffee in Norway has always been this kind of light, more or less. Um, so, but it was maybe the first time where you had the combination of like really unique uh, green coffee roasted extremely light. And people were roasting this light for cupping. So, and that was a thing back then. We were roasting light for cupping and then darker for consumption. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why, but. I don't know either. I mean, uh, the only thing, I mean, I've never been a roaster, but I, uh, I, I just know that. Um, I mean, from running Solberg and Hansen for many years, it was like back then it was, I mean, the roasters ge generally went darker and darker automatically. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's a tendency when you roast the same coffee over and over again, it tends to get darker over time if you don't, if you don't recalibrate yourself kind of. Yeah, maybe. I, th I think that, that, that at least was a problem we had where we had to sometimes go back and, and I'm not saying we were light enough, but we were still gradually normally getting darker yeah even though we didn't want to roast dark yeah uh, but uh, 
definitely you were pushing um uh i mean i i mean sometimes i mean sometimes i had a couple of examples i remember when when the coffees were even even in your shop i mean it didn't happen often but i mean over so many years i mean it's happened maybe once or twice where i i mean that's a personal taste also where the coffee becomes where it's too let's say too little developed yeah uh but usually it's uh, i mean yeah i mean you always risk that but i mean being on that uh, borderline is kind of interesting yeah and i think when you're a bigger roaster you try maybe even though you don't want to you you have to maybe be a little bit more on the safe side yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, that's true. I mean, if you roast 100 kilos and it's underdeveloped, then you have to throw it away. <laughs> but uh, I would say that um, uh, with our new roasting machine, it's much more difficult to be on that border because uh, it's more efficient than our previous roaster, which was a very old kind mm. of vintage roaster. Then uh, for sure we were underdeveloping our coffees, and especially in like the beginning when we started pushing for these light roasts. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it created a lot of debate, and I remember uh, Twitter was quite new back then, um, and uh, coffee people were very active on Twitter. And uh, I remember we put some provoking tweets out, like, uh, for instance, uh, and I'm not, I'm still not ashamed of saying this, but we we tweeted back then that uh, some American roasters should be banned from buying Kenyan coffees because they roasted it too dark. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure if I would say that today, but um. Uh, we felt that, you know, uh, especially like uh, the bigger commercial roasters in the U.S. were roasting so dark, and I still feel like that, uh, mm. uh, that you couldn't really taste the origin anymore. It just tastes like burnt flavor. And of course, you have somewhere a lot of things in between from underdeveloped to very dark. But of course, when we said that, uh, we got attacked back, like we are just underdeveloping the coffees, blah, blah, blah. And I get that. When you taste a really dark roasted coffee, and if that's your reference, and then you taste our coffees, they do taste very underdeveloped. Yeah. But if you get used to the lighter roasts, then you start tasting the nuances. And I think maybe that's the same with darker roast. That's you get used to that kind of roast flavor, and then you start to pick up the nuances a little bit. Maybe. So uh, yeah. it's kind of like working in a in the barn. Uh, after five minutes, you don't smell the yeah. the dung anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's definitely a hab habitual drink. So yeah. So I mean, what your your reference or, or what you're used to is what you refer to, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, when people say, I mean, I remember back then when people said that it's more like tea, and then it's like that in the beginning was like a little bit of a uh, off word kind of, and then. I mean, now it's if it's tea-like, it's very it's positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always say it's not the coffee that tastes like tea; it's the tea that tastes like coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. because the coffee is not flavored. No, but very often the tea is flavored. That's true. Um, one of the things uh, we did also with this Aricha coffee was we competed in the World Barista Championship with um, one of our baristas, Chris Colby. He was one of the first four that worked for us. And uh, he competed in Denmark in 2008 with uh, this coffee from uh, Ethiopia. And to make that taste even more fruity, we had like, I think the espresso was the Ethiopian natural. And then we had a cappuccino that we used uh, Indian coffee, which is kind of very chocolatey and low acidity uh, from Ashok, I think. Yeah. And um, then the signature drink was basically uh, the Ethiopian natural espresso uh, mixed with the, I think, Aeropress brewed uh, coffee of the same coffee. And just we add a little bit of sugar to sweeten mm. it. 
just a little bit and we cooled it down. So it was like an iced mix of espresso and filter coffee of the same coffee. So only two ingredients or three. It was coffee, water and sugar. Mm. And I remember the judges, uh, I think Chris came ninth place and we looked at the, the sheets afterwards, the judging sheets, score sheets. And the comments was that the signature drink, which only consisted of water, coffee, and sugar, they said didn't taste enough coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And I think it was just because the coffee was so fruity that mm. uh, you you kind of uh, if you were used to coffee tasting like used to back then, which was more like generic coffee flavor. This was 2009, so you know, um, still the coffee industry was quite uh, underdeveloped, I would say, when it comes to very unique coffees. The Geisha just hit the market a few years before. But if you're used to that kind of generic coffee flavor, uh, you don't know how to kind of assess something that tastes so different. But uh, there was a guy in the finals, a Swedish barista, that used the same coffee. So apparently some of them liked it. But it's, I mean, especially that time, we have been uh, talking about this earlier, like how much things have, have changed. I mean, if you look, it from, look at it from, from today's perspective, it's, it seems really ridiculous. But, but I mean, I remember also, I mean, the picture you, you will post of the coffees from, from the barista, no, the cu- cupping. Um, Nordic, Nordic barista uh, cup. Nordic barista yeah. cup. It's like, I mean, the problem was that, I mean, the judges were... Uh, were people I mean like normal people and they each have different uh, references yeah so so I mean they don't really have I mean now it's more evident that uh, light roast uh, kind of proves the coffee in a better way but uh, back then I mean if you were if you were used or used to drinking more dark coffee or even a stronger brew also yeah uh, then you would you would kind of vote for that in the competitions so I mean if you I mean, the thing is, like in the early stages, it it wasn't really necessarily rightfully judged, yeah, uh, because the ju- I mean, because it's an evolution. So yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the beauty of having many judges yeah. uh, that we did in that competition back then. I think all the participants at yeah, the Nordic Barista Cup were judges, so you kind of you know it evens out somewhat. There's but, yeah, pro- both yeah. progressive and. Yeah. yeah, but in that competition in particular, yes. But I mean, if you go to the World Barista Championship, yeah, yeah. there's maybe six judges or I mean, three taste judges. Yeah, f- four. Four. Yeah. yeah. So it's like uh, it's more personal. I mean, depending on what they, what their personal preferences yeah, are. For I sure. Mean, it's still especially is in the early stage. Yeah, but now it's a little bit more. It still is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they calibrate. Yeah. Let's not get into that. No. <laughs> <laughs> we can make ten episodes about that. Yeah. Uh, also, the, the same year, 2008, um, I don't remember if I brought that coffee because uh, I think we were out, but uh, it was the start of what I call uh, the restaurant era for us, at least. Um, I was invited to the best restaurant in Norway back then called Bagatell, yeah. Chef Eivind Hellström. Uh, he contacted me and said, uh, I need better coffee. <laughs> Can you help? And uh, he was, uh, well, it wasn't actually him, it was his sommeliers that contacted me, but he had uh, said to them, contact him. So I went there, you know, I was not very good at sales, like I, I don't, yeah. So I went there and I thought, you know, the only way for me to sell coffee is for him to taste it. And how am I gonna, I can't stand there and make coffee, you know, like 
it has to be ready for him. So I prepared a cupping. I showed up like uh, 30 minutes before the meeting and prepared a cupping so it was ready when he came into the office to sit down. And uh, I had put uh, the coffee that he was currently serving, which was a very okay commercial coffee. Um, and then I had some Indian coffee, a Kenyan coffee, uh, and uh, probably some cup of excellence from Central America. And he, he cupped the coffees, and uh, the first thing he pointed out, he was very quiet, and he's kind of frightening, because <laughs> mm. yeah. he's a big guy with a lot of authority. He was very quiet, and then uh, he pointed out one cup, and I had put them on, up blind, so I, I kind of mixed the cup up a little bit, and I had the written below what it was. He pointed out one cup and he said, I don't like this one. And I, you know, shit, I hope it's not my coffee. Mm. I lifted the cup and I'm, surely it was the commercial coffee. Um, and then he said, uh, I don't like the profile of uh, the Indian coffee. That's not what we want. Fair enough. And then he pointed at uh, Kenyan coffee and he said, this is the fruity flavors that I want in, in coffee. And, you know, he he's very old school when it comes to coffee. But mm. uh, he was... Uh, he kind of visionary enough to know what flavor he wanted for some reason. So we started uh, selling coffee there. Uh, a year later in 2009, they shut down. Um, and the sommeliers went off to work at the Fat Dog and uh, Noma. And a few years later, uh, the same guy called me, said, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the, uh, the start of... Uh, my restaurant coffee career and back then you know everyone in coffee was complaining about restaurant not having good coffee today especially here in oslo you find good coffee in many restaurants yeah. it's uh, very it's more it's, especially if you go to a good restaurant it's more common to have good coffee than not to have good coffee i would say yeah i agree but it, it was a very slow start yeah for it sure. took took long time um, uh, my MO opened, I think, uh, right about the same time, 2009 or something. Uh, they start, we started working with them. And then a few years later, we started working with uh, uh, Noma as mm. well. I think that was 2013, actually. So um, that's been and still is for me like uh, one of the things that I love to do. Um, and um, because I like to go out and eat and I like to have good coffee at restaurants and food and good coffee doesn't necessarily belong together side by side, but they definitely belong in the same setting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the start of that. Uh, but before we talk about that, uh, I had one episode uh, that I re very much remember in 2009 and it was after we had started working with uh, Bagatelle, the restaurant. Uh, I remember Morten told me, Morten from uh, Nordic Approach, he told me, Tim, uh, you have to go online and apply for a table at El Bulli, El Bulli <laughs> in Spain, which was back then the, the restaurant to go to. Um, world's best, you know, several times, Ferranadria, everyone knows who that is. And I thought, mm, yeah, why not? I can try. And then I went, I wrote them an email saying, uh, if you have a table, you know, any time, any day, uh, I, for two, then I'm happy to take the table. And uh, best regards, World Barista Champion Team Wendelbo. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, they had like a date where they announced uh, the tables uh, or like emailed everyone if you got a table. And of course, uh, nobody used to get a table because there were half a million people who wanted to get a thousand tables or something. 
shortly I got a mail uh, while I was doing a coffee training at Norsk Coffee Information. And uh, I was so excited. And I told everyone, hey, I got a table at Ebui. Nobody knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and then I called Morten and I said, hey, I got a table at Ebui. And he started swearing like, oh, you mother, you, 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 I, I've been trying so many years to get one. Why did you get one before me? And then when he was done doing that, I'm like, do you want to go? He's like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, restaurants back then was uh, surely like in lack of good coffee. And that restaurant was no exception. Mm. Uh, I went there and they served one of the most commercial espressos. Sure, they had made like a foam out of it. So it was kind of something different. But still, like it was like very low quality, robusta, which today would be unthinkable. You, yeah. know? you, you wouldn't do that today. And if you go to some of the best restaurants today, you know, they have, you know, even their own people making coffee that are specialized in coffee. Like Noma, they have their own coffee person who makes coffee there. Yeah. So that's uh, an evolution, I guess. Do you remember anything else from 2009? That's one specific thing that I did. Oh, that's a hard uh, question. 2009 <laughs> in uh, now in 2023. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, uh, from top of head, I don't really remember... Um, Specifically, 2009. Uh, no, I, I wrote a book in one week. Oh, yeah, you did that. Yeah, yeah, wow. The old Coffee with Tim Wendelbo book. Yeah. Um, I wrote it because we got so many uh, questions in the store, and they were all very basic. And <laughs> I thought, why don't I just write a book about this? Hmm. So that was the intention. And then uh, I had been co-publishing a book some years before. So the publisher asked if they could publish it. I said, yes. We had to put some cake recipes in there and stuff to please them. <laughs> but um, I actually just spent a week writing it because I already had like, I knew what I wanted to say. Uh, and it's not a very advanced book, like it's very basic. And we spent, I think, three months taking photos and selecting photos. So that was the hard part. But um, we sold, uh, it became a bestseller in Norway, uh, which is rare for like a, a you know, a coffee book. Um, and uh, it's been now translated to Portuguese, Chinese, Japanese, uh, English, Korean. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. That's crazy. Yeah. That's good. And it's very old. And I, we're jumping forward a little bit, but on our 10 year anniversary, I promised to write a new book. <laughs> I still haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's 16, yeah, so it's six years ago. Well, well, we'll get to that. Um, but I was, um, I think, at least uh, it's not because of the book, but I remember specifically during that time, there was a new wave of uh, coffee enthusiasts who came around, uh, very young people. There was a lot of them, and uh, people started really getting interested in coffee. Obviously, it was because more and more coffee shops were opening around Europe. People were traveling more, and uh, specialty coffee started to get more accepted, I guess, in the market. We, we're still not like where, uh, if you go to any random town, you know, you might not uh, find a great coffee place, but uh, it's still, uh, so there's still growth potential, I think, for like high quality coffee, but at least today, you know, mo mo most people know what it is, which didn't used to be the case back then. Yeah, and also we have uh, these uh, mail orders. I mean, you, d you didn't really have that in, uh, 
in two, I mean, you had it, but it, to a very small scale. A web shop? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So no, we actually had it for many years, but uh, yeah, back then it was... It was very small. Know, yeah, maybe yeah. two orders per week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now there's more like two orders per hour, maybe. Mm. But... um. Uh, yeah, so uh, it eventually it started uh, developing a little bit. I remember uh, maybe specifically 2010 was a year that at least uh, for me was has been quite important because it was the year where I started buying direct from Nascimento in Honduras, which was the first kind of farmer we started working with like hands-on to help him improve. And also Marisabella Moises, the Caballero family. I think maybe I didn't buy coffee from them in 2010 because they were sold out, but I went there to visit them. And also um, Los Pirineos in El Salvador, I think also was around that time uh, where we started buying and working with them. Um, and uh, that kind of changed the way I bought coffee entirely because I could see the benefits of uh, putting in some energy into making the coffee better uh, and having like a long-term plan for it. So obviously you've been traveling to farms. It's hard to come down to a farm and say, change this and then I'll buy your coffee because how are they going to change it? Do mm. they have money? They don't have the resources. Do you guarantee to buy the coffee? So I had been traveling around a lot to visit many farms and kind of started seeing some good farms, some bad farms uh, and thinking, you know, maybe if we did put all the good things together, maybe that would enhance the product quality. And it does, but it takes time. It's not done overnight. Um, you can do it by changing the process, of course. You can change the flavor, but if you really want to raise the quality, you have to start from the farm up. Like uh, <laughs> even before the coffee is picked, you have to start working. So that's the kind of year, year that uh, was quite impactful for me because uh, it was the start of a lot of these relationships. Some of them, you know, vanished. Uh, I don't work with them anymore either because they abandoned the farm or uh, it just didn't work out. So it's kind of like a dating, but um, um, at least those three farmers, we have been doing gradually a lot of work. For instance, uh, planting new varieties. Uh, Moises always says it takes 10 years to develop a new one. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not true because you can just plant seeds and off you go after four years, you have a good production. But um, uh, farmers like to be a little bit more careful. So they plant a little bit, see how it goes. After four or five years, you get some production, see how it goes, you taste. If you like it, you plant some more in another five years. Mm -hmm. Then you have a good production. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see the fruits of that now. Um, we started working with that maybe in 2012. I think we started planting different varieties on the different farms together with the farmers. And now we're getting more and more volume of those coffees. And uh, some of them are really good. Uh, and I've, at least they are different than the traditional ones. And that's for me uh, very nice because then I don't have to travel all around the world to get different flavors like we used to do. <laughs> but it's also like, I mean, uh, most, I mean, not most of it, but a lot of inventions in in food or in or in general i would say is uh, sometimes made out of uh, or um, uh, coincidences mm. so i mean it's not like i mean it's important like you say when you cooperate with farmers that you that you invest and that you commit and and for good and for worse i mean if it becomes 
uh, if it becomes a success, then I mean you should have some some part. Uh, I mean ownership, not ownership, but you should have some priority. I would say. Yeah. Uh, and if uh, if it fails, then you also have priority. But uh, yeah, you. I mean you should buy. Yeah. Uh, because I mean this is how it works, and sometimes you lose. Um, I mean it's not successful, and then you have to 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 bear with it. And sometimes you it works. I mean you have a lot of examples where it works out better mm. than uh, than you would think, and uh, and also vice versa. So yeah, but uh, it's the commitment I think from uh, or the yeah commitment that you 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 ask them to do something and you pay for it regardless in a way. Yeah, and I, m- I remember when I started working with Tamana in two thousand and twelve. It was like I went there for a week in June to really change everything that he did with the coffee and kind of produce, uh, I think it was 30 or 50 bags of coffee uh, in a specific way. Uh, And I told him I will buy it regardless of the outcome. Mm. As long as you follow my instructions on how to do it, I will buy it. And the coffee came, I was so excited and it scored like 83 points, (laughs) which was, you know, not so exciting. (laughs) But uh, we had to start somewhere. Today, uh, I just finished uh, tasting um, this year's harvest. Uh, there were 98 samples from Tamala, and uh, all separated and on variety and picking dates and everything. And on his traditional coffees, the average score now was 86 and a half points, wow. which uh, is still not a 90 point coffee, but it's still it's a very good coffee, and uh, it had a lot of fruit flavor. A lot of sweetness, uh, and that's the average score. So some scoring 87, some scoring down to 84, uh, but the majority is like 86 solid, I would say. Yeah, um, and and this is the most important also because I mean, this has been a, like a constant battle in coffee generally, where you know if you're a farmer and you produce, you know, 100% whatever, yeah, uh, and if uh, 10% of that is uh, is very good, and uh, the rest 90% is uh, very low, then you don't make money. No. Uh, so the, the I mean the the clue is to make, you know, to have some of course some signal lots that will be very very good. But then, ideally, is consistency on a high level because then that's when they can start making money. Because otherwise, it doesn't really. I mean, of course, if you're selling this crazy Panama lots, then you can make money. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not for everyone. No. Uh, but I also learned uh, from working with Elias, especially. Like, uh, even if you try, you will have coffee that is not good because yeah. you have to separate away the bad stuff always. And you have to sell that as well. But if you increase the quality of all the coffee, even yeah. the bad coffee gets better. Yeah. So uh, he's able to get a better price also for the kind of uh, the lots that we reject, um, which, you know, before was not the case. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I think... Um, but it's been rewarding, and I remember a specific uh, drying experiment in uh, 2012 uh, that we did at the, with the Moises and Marisabel, uh, the Caballeros, where we took one batch of coffee, we dried it s- different ways, like on a patio, raised beds, uh, mechanical dryers. And then I presented these coffees in uh, Nordic Barista Cup in 2012. We cupped them uh, blindly. Uh, I presented the experiment and everything. And surely one of them was woody already in August. This was harvested in March. Um, and then the experiment kind of went through for a year. And uh, gradually, you know, more and more of these coffees became woody, except the one that was dried under shade mm. on the raised bed, uh, which tasted fresh for almost two years. Um, and I, I, I actually have coffee in the fridge from 2012 from Tamana. 
uh, but it tastes a little woody, but it's not like <laughs> we copped it last year actually. Um, um, but that kind of changed the way we dry or want our coffees to be dried on every farm that we buy from. And of course, we can't do exactly the same infrastructure because every farm is different. But uh, that's just kind of one of the benefits from doing this kind of long-term work is that you can actually change things over time. And, you know, you start with one dryer and then after 10 years, you have 100 dryers that are good capacity. But I have to say, I mean, I think, I mean, this is maybe to jump a little bit, uh, not necessarily a conclusion, but I mean, I think the, I mean, the one of the key successes or success criteria for, for Tim Wendelbow, I mean, as a company is, I mean, it's definitely that, I mean, you have been sort of searching to develop and to to um, increase quality and not uh, compromise uh, with volume kind of, or, I mean, you've never been sort of searching for opening uh, more stores or more, uh, I mean, to be to become big, mm. but rather to be, to be better in a way. And I think that's, uh, it's pretty unique because most people or most concepts that are, have some some traction, they always are looking for the next uh, opportunity to uh, to expand, mm. and that uh, I don't think it would have been possible with. Uh, I mean, of course, it would have been possible with your concept, but then the concept would have been very much different. Yeah, because you couldn't uh, take care of the the nitty gritty that you have been doing, and and, and most people would say that uh, it's not like it's not very sustainable what you're doing because you should have profited more on on uh, expansion kind of but yeah. then uh, that's not what you wanted and then i think that's no. a success criteria as well <laughs> my answer to that is that uh i know a certain uh, coffee chain that has uh, several stores <laughs> and a lot of employees and they sell a lot of coffee uh, but they have never managed to make a profit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So uh, it's better to have a lean business, uh, I think, and where you're happy, yeah. uh, where you can make a small profit uh, and, uh, you know, live a good life and have a good working place for you yourself and your team. That's kind of been my goal when I opened this is to have a place where I want to work. Like, I know I'm not going to quit. <laughs> no. So I have to create a space where I want to be. And since I used to run six coffee stores for Stockfoots, I kind of know what that means to run several stores going from one to two and from there to six uh, and that's not uh, that's something that I don't want to do again because uh, I ended up being more like a janitor I felt like running around trying to fix problems yeah uh, and uh, it kind of uh, halted the progression I think of my own development uh, so that's why I decided never to open a more than one store I, I got approached uh, two weeks ago yeah. by a guy who wanted to open stores for me in a, another country, but um, I'm not so interested. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's pretty unique because most people do the opposite. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, uh, I think that's part of the key to, to, to the concept that it's not scalable. I mean, it could be, but it's not scalable, uh, at least hasn't been. No, but I think the way we work with the farms and uh, the way we buy and sell coffee uh, is definitely scalable. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it takes a lot of effort and time. Mm. At least uh, you have to invest a lot, especially in the beginning, uh, to create a good system that can be followed. And once that's up and running, then it's easy. Mm. 
But I, I mean, I've been traveling a lot for many years and visiting these farmers many times to get to a level where we're today I don't need to go there anymore. Like during, and that was like when COVID came, I didn't really have to go to buy a coffee. They just sent me samples. Everyone knew what to do. And of course I have to remind some details every now and then, but um, uh, that's the beauty of kind of creating a system. Although it's not a written system, everyone just knows. <laughs> And of course, we communicate better now. Back then, when I opened the company, Twitter didn't exist, Instagram didn't exist, Facebook had barely started. Mm. I remember using Facebook more like a dating app than a social community app. I don't use Facebook anymore, but um, uh, so communicating with farmers was not a thing you did. Uh, it was through exporters or importers. But today, I mean, everyone has WhatsApp. Uh, we're communicating on a weekly basis with many farmers. So that has definitely changed. Internet has really changed coffee. Mm. I think that's been the biggest revolution in my 25 years as a coffee person. People ask me, what's the biggest innovation in coffee? And I always answer internet yeah. as, or communication. Because uh, even today, if you go to Kenya, everyone has a smartphone you know, and can communicate. Yeah, mo most of them jumped uh, the normal phone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have that, but they go went straight to mobile phone with the uh, internet on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the start of Nordic Approach as well, because uh, this was around 2012, um, where we uh, we founded Nordic Approach. I think in 2012, 2011, 2011. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So I remember specifically the, like the pre-story for this. Mm. Uh, I was in Kenya with Morten uh, from uh, then Solberg and Hansen on a coffee buying trip. Um, and we were sitting in uh, the lobby of the central Kenya coffee mill, um, just waiting to get into taste coffees. And uh, I had gotten an email from uh, a Russian friend of mine who wanted to buy green coffee. And I said, you know, I told Morten, I get these requests all the time. I've been thinking about it this summer, maybe to go into the green coffee business because a lot of people ask me and I can buy more coffee from the farmers that I buy from, but uh, I can't I can't use the volume myself. And then Morten said, oh yeah, but it's complicated with green coffee. We tried at Solberg, uh, but I also want to do this. And he was already thinking of leaving to do something. Uh, so we sat down and I, we invited you very early in the process and we started uh, making a business plan for Nordic Approach, mm. uh, which today is uh, on the floors above our roastery uh, and quite a big uh, green coffee import company. Or not very big. You're not big. <laughs> You're not quite big, small. <laughs> quite small, but quite big in specialty, I would say. Yeah. I mean, because it's it's only specialty where... Highly specialized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, the reason why uh, that was started maybe at that time was because we started getting more and more requests because there were more and more roasteries opening. Um, you know, when I opened the roastery here in Norway, there were maybe less than 20 roasters in the total of the whole country. Yeah. And it was like that for a long time until like today, we there's close to 100, I think. Yeah. And the same happened in Europe. Like uh, I remember being in a coffee fair in Vienna in 2013 or 12, maybe 2012. Mm. And uh, it was almost like from one year to another, there was no one at the fair. And then the next year was like insane amount of people and everyone was planning on ro opening a roastery 
and everyone was asking, you know, where to buy the green coffee. <laughs> there were a few importers. I remember um, Mercanta. There was one called uh, Maraterra, maybe. There was Trabocca. Uh, DR Wakefield had some. There was yeah, there was a few importers doing you know small amounts of uh, high quality coffee, but yeah. no one was really specializing it. I think. So that was kind of uh, what was unique about Nordic approach. I think. I think I mean uh, what Nordic approach got uh, some criticism for, and uh, in the beginning was more that. Uh, I mean, f from day one, Nordic started out with um, uh, full transparency on on pricing, and uh, and uh, of course, uh, who produced the coffee, uh, which was uh, uh, not so interesting for many competitors because I mean they were they were used to be buying uh, to be able to buy coffee from uh, especially Ethiopia as an example, uh, where they were buying coffee that were very often exemplary in quality, mm. but the prices were not that high. Mm. Uh, and then they could kind of sell it uh, with, a, let's say, a better markup. Mm. Uh, and then when uh, when Nordic started uh, saying that we pay this much, then, I mean, there was like a kind of a sh some small disruption in the market where, you know, people were kind of uh, saying that you cannot do this because you're destroying the market, blah, blah, blah. But then, I mean, this is now the norm uh, that uh, you, I mean, if you're a specialty importer, you cannot really, I mean, you have to be kind of uh, selling or telling the whole story because otherwise you will not be trusted yeah. as an intermediary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But uh, it's it's uh, it, a few years later we saw you know a lot of people getting into green coffee import. Yeah. And, uh, today it's kind of been it's kind of like the craft beer uh, revolution. All of a sudden everyone wanted to brew beer, and then a few years later the best ones got bought up. Some uh, stayed uh, independent, and a lot of them disappeared. Yeah. I think that's happened uh, also in coffee with importers. It probably is happening with roasters as we speak, because um, we've seen that in uh, other countries that, that it happens. So, uh, but at least you know, one of the good things about this uh, is that it's much more accessible to get a delicious cup of coffee. So when I travel today, like when I traveled before, I always had to really research where to go to drink coffee. Like, yeah. and there was maybe one or two places. Today it's pretty easy. I don't even bother. I just open, you know, I go to sprudge.com and look if they have any city guides or something. And there's always a nice place. So it's much more easy to access good coffee almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. Especially also with the web shops, you know, subscriptions and everything. Uh, the, the market is much bigger now than it used to be, for sure. Okay, uh, 2012, we opened Nordic Approach. Yeah, I was working there, I remember, like, not on, uh, it was on the side of my company, um, helping out roasting samples and stuff, but I was never really, uh, the plan was actually to be working there more. That, from the start, that was the plan. But right about that time, my company started really growing yeah. as well. So I could see that if I didn't pay attention to my own company, uh, you know, it would go sailing <laughs> its own ship. <laughs> so um, I really had to change my focus and, and uh, be more uh, involved in the company. I was involved all the time, but uh, it, it, I had to pay more attention to it. Um, one of the things uh, that happened back then was uh, at the same time, uh, we started selling coffee at Noma. 
um, after Rene Redzepi got it, gave his famous talk at the Nordic Barista Cup in 2012, promising to have the best coffee in the world or something on, in his restaurant. And then um, Mats, the sommelier, who was a friend of mine, he called me and said, I need help. And I, I said, yeah, of course, I'll help you. And we kind of changed the way they made coffee a little bit. And uh, I was actually going to recommend them to work with Coffee Collective because they were the local roastery in Copenhagen. And then uh, when they were about to start, he said, okay, so how do we order your coffee? I'm like, but uh, <laughs> I didn't expect that. But because of that, we also got a lot more business here uh, in re with restaurants in Norway because the chefs in Norway went yeah. to Copenhagen. Um, and uh, so w our company started growing more on the wholesale side and uh, we started roasting more and more coffees and the cafe just became smaller and smaller. <laughs> So um, we had to kind of uh, prioritize a little bit, and that's also why I remember the lab at Nordic Approach used to be in our cupping room in the shop. Yeah. Uh, the first six months, but uh, you know we had to find another space for it. Uh, was everything ha happened in the store, and we didn't have space. That was the problem. All right, let's jump a little bit uh, because we could talk forever, I think, with each year. But um, maybe we should jump to uh, maybe around 2014, 15-ish. That was kind of a year that was, at least for me personally, um, something that changed my way of thinking about food and coffee in general. And um, because I got the opportunity to buy some land from Elias, uh, which today is called Finca El Suelo, which is our own coffee farm. And the idea with that was basically to experiment a little bit uh, with how to improve quality. I was asking maybe to rent one hectare from him to plant some coffee and see if we could you know, do some experiments. But it, it turned out to be seven hectares that he offered me and I bought it. He needed money to invest in his farm. So he said, okay, seven hectares, then I can get some money and uh, I can build, you know, different things. Um, and then I didn't even know anything about farming. Like uh, I knew something about drying coffee and processing coffee, but f you know, growing coffee, I didn't know. So I kind of started studying that and got into, someone tipped me off to study soil biology uh, with Dr. Elaine And that kind of changed my life, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> I became an organic fanatic. Our coffees are not organic today. We buy two coffees that are organic, but only one that's certified. But my plan is within the next 10 years that all of them will be organic. Not necessarily certified, but produced in a um, regenerative way. Sustainable yeah, it doesn't, way. It doesn't get more organic by being certified. No, exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh, it doesn't... I mean, as long as you, you follow your own uh, beliefs... It doesn't principles. really matter if yeah. it's certified or not, I mean, I have to say. For me, the, the principle of um, not depleting the soil, but regenerating it, yeah. is uh, that's the most important. Because that means the farmers we buy coffee from today, their kids can also farm coffee there. And their grandkids and their grandkids. Um, which is not the case today with the, the way coffee is farmed, I have to say. With mineral fertilizer, pesticides, fungicides, it's not a good thing. Um, so um, that was the kind of start of the Finca El Suelo project. We've made a podcast episode about that, so we don't have to go too much into details. But uh, at least that was the era I started spending a lot more time in Colombia, uh, not just like a week at a time, but three weeks at a time. Uh, I remember 
for two consecutive years, I was there three months in total uh, each year. And it really changed the way I thought about buying coffee because then I was on the farm, could see the kind of everyday problems, mm. the conversations that they have with the pickers. Um, and uh, it changed my way of thinking of how I buy coffee. Like it, it's not so important to me now that uh, the coffee scores 88 points, for instance. Like <clears throat> I'm not really looking for that. I'm looking for sweet coffees that are clean, uh, as long as they're consistent in quality, uh, good quality, of course, uh, and that it's produced in a good way. The pickers are paid well. That to me is more the complete picture of what is quality. Um, but back uh, before that, you know, we would score the coffees blindly, and if it scored 90 points, you would get this price, and if it scored 84 points, you would get that price, even though the farmer might have done exactly the same. It just turned out that one lot was better than the other. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of a strange thing to do because uh, it really uh, takes away the power from the farmer <laughs> of negotiating price. Uh, and also takes away the cost of production uh, from the equation because nobody cares. We only care about cup quality. Mm. But that was the way coffee was, at least in my world, w was bought back then. And to, to some extent still is, but uh, uh, if you know that the cost of the coffee is, let's say, $3 to produce one kilo of coffee, if you're paying less than that, you're not doing yourself a favor because the farmer is not going to be able to deliver. No. So that's kind of a, an eye-opening uh, uh, project for myself. Uh, you can learn more about it in the specific podcast episode about Finca El Suelo. But um, uh, that over the years have kind of been the most game-changing uh, decision that I've taken, I would say. But I think that, I mean, in order for, for it to be successful, I mean, you have to, you have to be... Uh, working in partnership with with producers because otherwise it doesn't I mean you can't really just go out and buy um, coffee based on that if you don't know how it's produced yeah so it's uh, yeah for yeah, sure so, so I mean because otherwise then you will choose you know something that cops better <laughs> if you don't have the insights I mean so yeah. it's, it's a little bit of a I mean uh, it's a holistic way and I, I kind of uh, uh, I mean I totally support your idea but it's not it's not so easy for everyone to do the same no, you can say that. <laughs> um, but one of the things that uh, I've been very passionate about over all these years uh, is to be transparent um, and to publish the prices we pay for coffee, explaining why we pay these prices for coffee. Uh, and the reason why we started with it, I think the first transparency report we published was 2010. Mm. Um, basically because that was the first year we could. <laughs> Before that, I really didn't know where all our coffees came from or what we paid for them. Um, but um, it's been important for me because uh, uh, very often our customers complain that our coffee was expensive. And then you have to start explaining why it's not expensive. You know, the coffee has been too cheap for too many years, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, not blah, 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 it's important stuff, but uh, you know, most people don't want to listen to that. So we started publishing a transparency report explaining, you know, this is what we pay for the coffee, this is what you pay. And most people don't read that either, you know, they're not interested. But what it really has uh, 
kind of put focus on is that, and that I didn't think about when we started publishing, is that farmers actually use this to mm. negotiate price with the buyers. Yeah. Because they say, okay, I am in the same area as Hobnil, for instance, in Honduras. He gets $4.50 for his coffee. Why am I only getting $2, you know? Mm. <laughs> Not that that happens, but um, that could be... A, uh, the situation. I've gotten feedback from farmers that they actually, you know, oh, we see you paying these prices, and how come we don't get these prices? And of course, that's complicated. Um, the only thing that I, I see that uh, was used to be a narrative before is that paying more, f paying more. Uh, what was the saying? If you pay more, the coffee quality goes up. That was kind of a narrative. So paying a better price makes the coffee better. Um, but that's not true. It's like s saying, if I pay my workers more, they, they will do a better job. No. <laughs> but if I, if I teach them how to do a better job, they will do a better job. Uh, and you may use money to incentivize it. But uh, just paying more doesn't help. So one of the things that I really am passionate about today is uh, it doesn't help to pay more, like once. If you go to uh, Colombia, for instance, to buy coffee. You can travel around Colombia. There's f a half a million farmers. You can taste half a million coffees if you want and buy the best one, pay a good price, and be very happy that you pay a good price, uh, have good coffee. You come back the next year, you do the same exercise, you choose the best coffee. It's most likely not going to be the same farm. Uh, so it doesn't help if you pay a better price because it's just like winning the lottery. The money disappears very mm -hmm. fast, yeah. and you can't invest it in some anything. Maybe you even have debt you need to pay back. So the only kind of uh, way that I see, if you want to really increase quality over time, uh, that we have done for over 10 years with these farmers, paying a good price for over 10 years, you see the gradual transformation. You don't necessarily see it from year to year. Sometimes you see it because they built a new house or something. but you see eventually they actually have money to invest in their farm. They, you know, they start making good decisions when they invest. Instead of buying cheap plastic covers for their dryers, they buy solid ones that last 20 years. You mm. know? Um, and that's the kind of uh, change you see when you do this. And it all started with the back to 2008 when I think it was you who told me that the farmers in Kenya didn't get paid mm. for the coffee you bought. <laughs> That was the spark of the whole uh, thing. And everyone was talking about transparency and how important that is, but transparency itself is not important. What's important is that you pay a good price and the money goes to the producer mm. so that they can reinvest and supply you with good coffee. That's what's important. Yeah, I and, agree. And I think we kind of forget that principle in, in the whole debate. We tend to debate, is it the FOB price that's correct or is it, you know, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you pay a good price and the farmer gets paid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we had a 10-year anniversary in 2017, hmm. um, where I promised to 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 write a book. The book has not been published yet, but uh, I'm, I am writing it, and I have been writing it uh, on it this year. Um, but we also had a 15-year anniversary. It was last year, I think. And it was in your garden. That's true. Yeah. And you've been uh, following the company for or 16 years now, because uh, we've been around for 16 years. What are the biggest changes you see from 
the early days where we, it was basically Ola Brattos, Tim Varney, Chris Kolbu, Ingrid and myself working <laughs> until today where we have a roastery that we moved in 2018 to Tayen. We have, uh, I think, 20 people working here now. And uh, I would say it's, it's still the same company, but it's also very different. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a very hard question, but I think that... Uh, um, I think that, uh, I mean, the concept uh, Tim Wendelboe has kind of stayed a little bit what it, I mean, like you said, with the business plan in the beginning, it, it's kind of the same, but it has been, has been adjusted with the development in time. Mm. Like, so, like you said, I mean, like yeah, the roastery is here now, uh, so people are working a little bit more. I mean, even though you have people who are doing crossover, it's a little bit more, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger staff base. Uh, but I think for most people, if you go to the shop, which is maybe what most people kind of encounter when they think about uh, Tim Wendelbo, I yeah. think I think the experience is very much the same. Mm. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, I mean, I. I, I mean, uh, how can I say this? I mean, in the beginning, you were a little bit more of a soup Nazi, like a, a little bit more. For sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you were in the details much more yourself. Yeah. Uh, and now, I mean, you've always been very, very strict on uh, on uh, on your staff and uh, routines and you know guidelines and uh, and teaching, not to mention. So I think that you know you still have the same feeling when you go to the shop. But it's, I mean, people who know you and know the story knows that now. I mean, even though you're in the background, it's not necessarily you as much as it was before because yeah. it's implemented in a organized way. But it's. Uh, I feel it's the same in a way, but it's just a little bit more, you know, we evolve yeah. uh, as people and industry. And uh, I think that uh, that's also, I mean, why I kind of also like uh, Tim Mendelbo as much as I do, because it's, I mean, it's pretty consistent, mm. uh, which I think is important and, and still not, it's not old school. I mean, it, it, I don't think it will ever be because it has to be evolving and follow, uh, let's say, the development, and also lead in some uh, some parts. But um, I think that's basically how I look at Tim Melbo now and then. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's. Uh, if no, it's. Uh, a, I think it's a good summary. It has evolved a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned we used to be more like a soup Nazi yeah. thing. If you have watched Seinfeld, if you haven't, then <laughs> you have to watch that episode. But. Uh, uh, and we, I think still people refer to that sometimes. But uh, if you go there today and meet Stephanie behind the bar, who's been with us for 11 years, I think, you know, it's it's a fantastic customer experience. Yeah. And also all the other baristas, Stephanie is great at training them. She's been working there for 11 years, training people. So uh, I think uh, the atmosphere is, uh, of course, it's more busy now because we have 20 seats instead of one. Mm. <laughs> so the atmosphere is a little different. But uh, you still get the essence of what we try to do, I think. Back then, you know, th yeah, you mentioned old school. Yeah, we were making coffee differently back then, but that's also part of our company. We, we evolve. And that's actually stated in our kind of, uh, this, uh, what we call a vision, is that we, we are supposed to evolve. We're not supposed to be static and, you know, do the same all the time, although it might seem like that because it's the same concept. Yeah, but I, I like the combination of, I mean, uh, like you started with uh, that, you took over the um, the the shop in uh, in Easter in 
2007. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, as far as I know, almost, I mean, every year or every other year or whatever, maybe every year, every you, close, year. You, you close the store in uh, Easter and you and you um, uh, varnish the floors. Varnish the floors. Yeah. <laughs> and it's every just year. like, uh, yeah, every year. And that's, <laughs> a, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, so in, in one way you're very, you know, it's good routines, you follow them and it's some kind of tradition. And then it's also the inventions or um, development, yeah. which I mean, I like the combination because it's like, you know, people are always nicely dressed. They give you the good co um, customer service. It's always clean. You know, it, it works. I mean, that's something that you should never forget when you're doing customer service. Yeah. And then uh, and then you should, you know, follow the times when it comes to if it's buying coffee or roasting coffee or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's funny that you say, because one of the things that I've written down is that w I think one of the keys to our success is that we have never jumped on trends. No. <laughs> <laughs> but we do change. Yeah. And we do new stuff. And um, But it's been important for me not to jump on every single trend. Like w when you worked in coffee for a long time, it's pretty easy to spot like something that is trendy that will pass after two weeks or <laughs> something that is, you know, high quality that will stick around because it's good quality. Yeah. So I think uh, because we are kind of more focused on on serving good coffee experiences, uh, then uh, and I have a very strong opinion on what that is, um, then it's easy to kind of not, or it's easy to do our own thing without having to look at what everyone else is doing. I'm, we're pretty secure on our path and our kind of vision and who we are as a company. Should I sum up some highlights maybe? Yeah, I yeah? think you should. Um, well, for the first highlight has been all the people who have worked there. There's been so many cool people that I've been able to work with for yeah, 16 years. Mm. Not that many people. Uh, I think we're less than 40 people who have worked in the company in total. That's um, impressive. Uh, like Stephanie has been here for 11 years. She's been a fantastic uh, team member. Ben, who is our wholesale manager today, has been here for eight or nine years. Marit, who is actually leaving on Friday. <laughs> Uh, she's been here also nine years or eight, nine years. Uh, I could mention Tim Varney, who everyone remembers from the early days. Ola Brattos, who is now in Kaffebrenneria. There's so many people. Uh, Astri, who is now doing a farm down south. Um, yeah, and Ida, of course, who opened a coffee shop in Tromsø, mm. uh, which we are actually part owner in. Uh, but she used to work with us for many, many years, and then she got the opportunity to inherit a house for free from her parents in Tromsø, which is up north. She couldn't pass on that uh, offer. So she decided to move and then we were very sad she couldn't work with us anymore. And then she got opportunity to open a coffee shop. So we're kind of doing that together now. It's her shop, uh, but we're kind of a silent, silent partner and I've been kind of mentoring her a little bit. That's also been a highlight actually to see people grow from, she was kind of, uh, she was supposed to be a teacher going to teaching school or whatever you call it. And then while she was working with us, she decided not to do it and to focus on coffee. Mm. And uh, she's still in coffee. And that's a cool thing, I think. Uh, Nordic Roaster competitions, nine times. <laughs> we won it. That's good. And the victory is sweet, but... Uh, one of the highlights is uh, the rivalry that I've, we have had against uh, the team at Solberg & Hansen, which are good friends of ours, Simo. And it's more like a friendly 
thing. And uh, um, yeah, that's been a, a fun thing. And also that we have been able to win it with different team members every year because uh, the roasting team changes or yeah. evolves. So uh, we have been able to be consistent uh, in quality regardless of which person has been roasting. But is it only the, those two companies who have won? Uh, no, no. There no. was uh, Damateo. Damateo was uh, one, yeah. Fika Fika in Taiwan, yeah, true, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a few. Yeah. Um, of course, working closely with the farmers that we buy from has been fantastic. And some of them are very, very good friends, or well, I would say all of them are. Mm. Um, but that's been uh, uh, re- very rewarding. I'm a godfather of uh, Diego and Derlin. <laughs> that's, we went to their wedding last year. Diego is the Colombian World Barista Champion, mm. um, who is married to Elias's daughter, Elias, who is producing the Finca Tamana coffees. Um, I think, uh, I mean, there's so many highlights. I could sit here for hours talking about all of them. But um, one thing that also was kind of rewarding was that we managed to pull through the COVID period. Uh, And that showed how resilient the business has become um, because we have been focusing on not just one thing, but doing several things. So... If we only focused on doing wholesale, for instance, we would be more or less out of business, I think, yeah. uh, during COVID. Uh, but because we had uh, the web shop, we managed to grow and take that kind of loss uh, back with uh, selling to directly to the consumer over the internet and also the coffee shop itself. Um, so that's kind of um, maybe one of the things that looking back has been or at least is satisfying to see that it, the business model actually works for now. <laughs> you never know what's going to come. but um, And that's also much thanks to you because you've been uh, on the board of directors and been challenging me to, to take good decisions um, all the time, I think. And uh, I've had opportunities. We have been discussing, I remember it was one year where I got an offer from a company in Taiwan to sell the whole business. And it just didn't feel right. And uh, I don't remember what your standing was in that case, but uh, it, it doesn't matter because I don't care what you think, but you always make me think. And that's mm. been kind of uh, why I appreciate having you on the board. But I also, I mean, uh, and one of the highlights, I mean, I think the, we talked about it earlier also, but the, the, the one of the highlights or the, is the people. I mean, the people, uh, you talked about the farm side and the staff side. But also the people in coffee in general. I mean, the whole mm. community is fantastic, and uh, and I think that you know, as long as we we all, I mean, most of us respect each other uh, on different levels, and then and then we can have honest and truthful discussions, and we can be. I mean, we have been fighting as you know, cuts not fighting <laughs> physically, but verbally, we've been fighting yeah. uh, really hard on uh, on things we believe in. But uh, I mean, we never become unfriends or disrespectful. It's just more that we. We have some. Uh, I mean, we're, we don't think the same about everything, but we we can discuss, and I think that's kind of the, the quality of the the industry or yeah. or the people or the community because it's you can you can be so, but then at the end of the day, it makes you think. Yeah. And then you go home, and then you you may rethink, and you may not uh, even admit it. Uh, some of us, but still, you, you it changes you. Yeah, for sure. That's a good uh, point. There's a lot of passion 
passionate people yeah. and uh, we all think we're right and everyone else is wrong <laughs> and then all of a sudden you 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 actually do change your mind i've yeah. changed my mind all the time so um, and also we have to remember the customers yeah i i actually i had to go to the bank the other day uh, and it's next to stockfleet lilligansen where i started working mm. 25 years ago and i went in to have a cup of coffee and surely one of the regular customers when i used to go there <laughs> is sitting in the window and he turns around and he looks at me and says hey tim it's been a long time <laughs> you know that's one of the best you know yeah. and it was just like it was in the old days like i don't remember his name but uh he's there every day working or drinking coffee and uh, you know i i felt back then that i was important to someone mm. because they came in every morning they needed a cup of coffee i would try to make it as best as i can and still, even though I'm not working in a behind the bar every day, or not, <laughs> never work behind the bar, uh, maybe do it once a year, but uh, still, that's what it's all about, giving people a good experience mm. uh, on both sides, not just the customers, but also farmers, the people who work here, the people who contact us, everyone's supposed to get a good experience. I think that's the essence. I agree. Well, that was uh, my final wise words. Uh, after 25 years in coffee, that's what coffee is all about, giving good experiences. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see what the next 25 years will bring. Yeah, we're, well, fortunately, we don't have to talk about that today. Oh. It's been uh, one and a half hour, uh, but um, we can talk about that in 25 years. Yeah. Um, my plan is to continue the path that the company is on. Uh, and uh, we've gone through the last two years now uh, kind of restructuring process uh, and also putting down on paper what I had had in my head like in terms of strategy and everything so that all the people in the company can understand you know and take wise decisions based on what's the company strategy and that's been really rewarding and um, has made the company uh, much more uh, determined I would say so now we know exactly what we should do and not to do, and we will just do more of what we want to do. <laughs> so that's been a very healthy process. And so I hope like for the next 10 years that we will become even more team mentable than we are. And I'm talking about the company, not myself. Hmm. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you, Tim. Uh, for all the listeners, thanks for staying on for so long if you are still listening to this <laughs> i know it's been a long episode but 25 years in three hours is not too bad i think uh, if you have any questions or comments or if you thought i was insulting about the dark roast kenya american comment perfect then please comment on our instagram account uh, i'm happy to answer anything you have there and maybe even make a small follow-up episode if there's any subjects or topics that you want me to dig into more in detail so thank you so much for listening and thank you andreas for joining uh, i'm sure we will do this in another 25 years <laughs> that's great ciao ciao everyone and uh, stay tuned for the next episodes because we will be publishing some episodes for christmas and around there ciao